Connection Christian Church. I'm so excited to be here worshiping with you, and, I, and I'm so excited to be sharing with you today. So I want to start, start with a question. So my question is, what do you think of whenever you hear the words, be good? Now, some of you, you might be thinking of one of your parents sending you off to school, reminding you to be good for the day. Maybe some of you are maybe thinking of your parents still saying, be good, and, and you'll get a surprise later. Or maybe still some of you are thinking of someone in your lifetime that has told you to be good, maybe as an encouragement or even maybe as kind of a, a stern rebuke or a stern discipline um, for something wrong that you had done. Now, whenever I hear the words, be good, I'm reminded of Mrs. Erfer. So Mrs. Erfer, she was my second grade teacher, and the thing you need to know about her is she was towards the end of her career, so she, this woman, she knew everything there was to know about second graders. She, she knew second graders like the back of her hand. She knew kids like the back of her hand. She was an expert in elementary kids. So me and Mrs. Erfer, we had an interesting relationship. So is anybody here a teacher? Has anybody ever taught, taught students at all? Yeah, so you know that there's always that one student who's the troublemaker, right? Well, the relationship that me and Mrs. Erfer had is I was the troubled kid. I was the one who was always causing some kind of trouble in the classroom. So at one particular time, Mrs. Erfer, she had fractured her foot, and she was wearing this boot, you know, for, for several weeks, and, and it had this little air pump that you would stick in there, and you would pump it up so that you could adjust the pressure in it to make it more comfortable. So during class, she would, you know, she'd run over to her desk, she'd pull that pump out, and she'd pump the, the, the cast up, you know, and I thought it was the funniest thing, that she would stop, and she'd have to go put air in her boot. But, so I devised this plan that I was going to steal that pump. So... I decided that at recess time, I was going to ask to go to the bathroom, run in, and, and steal that pump and hide it in my desk. So that's what I did. We went out to recess. I went up to Mr. Zerfer, and I asked, you know, hey, I need to go to the bathroom, you know, right like it's an emergency, you know what kids do. But um, so I ran in there, and, and I grabbed the pump out of her desk, and I, hit, and I hid it in my desk, and then went back outside. You know, so then recess was over, and we, we all shuffled back in and got into the, into the lesson for the day. And it wasn't but a few minutes into the lesson that Mrs. Erfer, you know, she shuffles over to her desk, pulls out the little pump, and we're looking for it anyways, pulls open the drawer, and, and she's shuffling around, and then she stands there for a second just thinking. And then to my horror, she looks directly up and looks right at me. And I cannot even begin to describe the terror that I felt in that moment. I'm like, how did this woman, this, this, this woman know that I was the one who stole that pump? You know, so she walks over to my desk, she stands there, and she says, can I look in your desk, please? So, you know, I, I couldn't weasel my way out of it at this point. You know, she knew I had it, so I opened up my desk, and there it was. So, of course, my punishment was I got sent to the office, which wasn't so bad because I got out of class. But this particular event was the catalyst for the new method of discipline that they decided for me was the behavior report. So what that meant is each day, Mrs. Erfer, she would put a slip of paper in my folder that I had to take home and have my parents sign. And the, the, the p colored paper was yellow, uh, red, or green. And if, if I got a green paper, then I was good that day. If I got a yellow paper, I was okay. And if I was, got a red paper, then I was bad. And what, what kind of what happened is I equated this with, okay, if I got green, then the adults liked me today. Then I'm okay. If I got red, then the adults hated me that day. You know, and th then I was in trouble when I got home. So as you can imagine, this system, it, it worked for a while, and for the first, first few weeks, I got green every day. You know, I would even make sure that I was walking right so that Mrs. Erfer would give me green. But then, eventually, this being good thing, it, it didn't work for me anymore. 
I stopped getting rewards for having a green week, and my behavior would start right back in like it was before, picking on kids, making noises in class. That was my favorite thing, making noises in class, making a cricket noise was my favorite. So it was almost impossible to teach me how to be good because my motives were all wrong. I wanted the reward. I didn't just want to be good just for the sake of being good. So this is kind of the idea that, that we're looking at this morning that I want to talk about. So Pastor Brian, he shared with us last week that God uses three different things to teach us what it looks like and what it means to be good. And I want to focus this morning on, on the last of these three things, which was this. God himself teaches us to be godly. God himself teaches us to be godly. So he shared with us last week the situation that Paul was in that led him to write this letter to Titus. So Paul, he was in a similar situation as Mrs. Erfer, but Mrs. Erfer, she had second graders, and Paul, he had the Cretans, which, as we find out, that they behaved quite similarly. So the Cretans, they were getting a red report, so much so that Paul writes that even their own prophets were calling them, their people lazy, evil beasts, and, and, and lazy gluttons and liars. So he, Paul, he identifies this bad behavior and he sends Titus to the island of Crete, and then he writes in this letter, encouraging and instructing him on what Christian living should look like. So picking up in chapter 2 of Titus, Paul, he gives this, this, this high order for the church in Crete. And he begins his, and he takes the entire intent of his letter to a glorious resolution that, that still moves and drives the church today. So here it is, Titus 2, verse 1. But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. That's what Paul writes to Titus. So Paul says, your job is to speak out the things that make for good Christian living. And then he lists a whole bunch of, I'm not going to read them directly, but I'll summarize them. So he says to the elders, he says, make sure you're respectful, make sure you're being self-controlled, make sure you're being hospitable, and make sure that you're not greedy for money. Oh, and then for the women, make sure you're reverent, make sure you're not talking bad about people, make sure you're not drinking too much, make sure you're taking care of your family. Oh, make sure you're being kind too. Oh, and, and you also need to be self-controlled. Then he says to young woman, he says, go ahead and just listen to your mother because she's already doing everything right, so just do what your mother's doing. And then he says to the younger men, have self-control because you have to be an example of the good works that other people need to be doing. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I read all these instructions, they seem like quite a tall order to expect of people. And I read all of these expectations and, and, and I quickly think to myself, there is no way that I can manage to maintain such a lifestyle in a world that is everything but that lifestyle. But more about that in a second. So the, eth the essence of Paul's idea here, if we put it in one simple statement, is tell the people to be good. Tell the people to be good. So then this very naturally leads us to consider, what, is he, what does it even mean to be good? What, what does it mean to be good? What does that mean? So it's described over and over in this chapter as being self-controlled, humble, loving, respectful. We can make sense of that. We, we, we can get with that sort of idea. That makes sense. Even the world says that those are good qualities to have. But then that leads us to the next question. How do we teach someone to be good? Or how do we even learn how to be good? You see, teaching people how to be good, it, it doesn't always lead to the results that we wish to see. And if you're a teacher, you understand that. Just because Mrs. Erfer would send home a, a report on my behavior every, every day it didn't necessarily mean that I was going to change my behavior the next day. And just because we know what, what Titus writes here, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to do it. And, and you, know, you all know exactly what I'm saying. Just because the sign says don't drive over 60 doesn't mean that you're all driving 55 everywhere. You know exactly what I'm saying. 
Just because Scripture tells us to love our neighbor doesn't necessarily mean that we are doing it. So we've arrived at this this age-old dilemma of not doing what we're told. And Scripture calls that sinning, missing the mark. So then what then? What hope do we have, you know, if if we are continuously missing the mark? But Titus 2.11 says this. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, verse 11, it, it follows up quickly behind these instructions as kind of a natural flow of thought. It says, you will do this because of this. So it's kind of a conditional kind of thing. You are going to do this because this is true. So for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. So there's a really interesting word in there that, that we speak about in church all the time, but I don't think we really know what it means. And that word is grace. So what does grace mean? I'm glad that you asked because I'm going to tell you. So grace is, it's unmerited favor. It's God's love for us while we are still sinners. It's God saying, I love you, and you didn't do anything for it. It's an infinitely holy being inviting an infinitely unworthy creation into his house. It's an infinitely holy being inviting an infinitely unworthy creation into his house. So grace is God's favor. It's God's loving kindness. It's God's desire to be with us. God desires to be in relationship with us on the basis that we simply exist. Now, if if you've lived in the world, which all of you have, you know that this is completely in conflict with what the world teaches. The world teaches that favor is only found after you've done something to deserve it. The world teaches us in a way like the the second grade behavior report taught me that the adults only liked me as long as I was doing okay. The world teaches us that all of our relationships are are, are conditional. Let me explain that a little farther. As long as I stand up here and as long as I say pretty words, then you'll find favor in me. Then you'll love me. Or as as long as you do good, then people will like me. As long as I work hard and I have a good job and I have a good home, then I will have found favor with people. Then I will have found favor with God. But here's the deal. All of the religions of the world, that they teach this very same concept. If I just do all the things for the duration of my lifetime, then someday, someday when I, when I die, I will achieve an award for living well. But here's the deal, church. Christianity, it speaks a different word. Christianity says that there is a God who created you, a God who willed you into being for his delight, for his glory, and because of this, he will take care of his creation. You see, God's loving kindness, his grace towards us, it has nothing to do with, with, with who you are. It has nothing to do with who I am. It has everything to do with who God has made us to be. He sees in us the reflection of himself. He, he sees in us his image, his glory, his grace, his kindness, his goodness. And we reflect all of those attributes best when we believe that he already loves us and we haven't done anything for it. And when we're not living in that, we live with shame and we live with guilt. And this shame and this guilt, it points at you and it says, you cannot be loved. You cannot be loved because you haven't done anything yet to earn it. And what shame and guilt does, it backs you in a corner and it tells you that you must work relentlessly someday to achieve a status of favor with God. (laughs) But God... He smiles at us, and he says, You are already invited, just as you are. 
And with that, he disarmed the powers of sin and shame and of death forever and ever. Because of God's favor for his creation, his fierce loving kindness for us, the ones he created, all the the powers that once tried to separate us from God, they no longer have any authority in the presence of an all-powerful God. See, what Paul writes here is he says, be good because God, he already finds favor in you. And that gives you victory over death. That gives you power over sin and death. He doesn't say, be good, and then God will give you this victory. Be good, and then God will give you this. Because here's the deal. The gospel, it's not about you and your sin. The gospel, the good news, is about God and his grace. And church, that is good news. That is good news. So continuing on in in Titus 2, verses 12 through 14, Uh, Paul writes this. He says, instructing us, the grace of God, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. So the first word in, in, in chapter, I mean, in verse 12, is the word instructing. And, th- and this word instructing kind of has the same idea of a teacher, of someone training somebody else, of somebody educating. has the idea of something, somebody older and wiser teaching and training and instructing somebody younger and not nearly as wise. So we can safely assume that this means instructing assumes relationship. Instructing assumes relationship. So I want to talk about this, this relationship for just a second in, in a way that we kind of understand in our world. I want to talk about an adoption relationship, and I know that a, a lot of you are familiar with the idea of adoption. So an adopted child, he, he enters or she enters a new home, a new culture, new values, new rules, and, and this child is completely unaware of all the minute details of the new place. Now the new parent is aware of the challenges and the struggles that will take place as the child adapts and, and changes to the new home. And, and the parent lovingly directs and teaches and disciplines the child in a way that allows the child to make mistakes, but refuses to leave the child in the same situation in which he or she came. So what changed? Th- there's still teaching, there's still instruction that needs to be happening, but the thing that changed for the child was adoption. The child now lives and exists in a household in which he or she has a parent that is present and that the child can know and that the parent wants the child there. Now the parent spends time with the child. The parent teaches the child how to crawl, how to walk, how to to tie their shoes, and when the time is right, teaches them how to ride a bike, and then even beyond that, teaches the child how to drive a car, teaches the child how to communicate with other people effectively. The personality and the perspective of the child is shaped in monumental ways by the, by the parents just because they care, simply because the parent willed for the child to exist in their family, willed the child to exist in their home. So the, the result of adoption is a child that is completely different and oftentimes entirely better off than the situation the child was found in. And, and you can see where I'm going with this. Now think about this as Christians. We're we're adopted into the kingdom of God. We become members in the family of Christ, 
because God desires for us to be there. He desires for us to live in his house because he loves us. And you know the only thing that you have to do? Just don't run away. Just don't run off. You see, the result of adoption into the kingdom of God by the blood of Jesus results in being people who are wholly different than when we began. Because God, present with us in the house in every moment, teaches us by his grace what it means to live well. Now, he doesn't just desire for for you to be free from sin. He desires for you to live in the kingdom right now. He desires for you to live an abundant life right here, right now. Because Romans 2, 4, it says, God's kindness is intended to lead you into repentance. God's grace desires more for us than, than just the management of our sin, but it desires for us to live well now, to be good now. Because encounters with who God is, his loving kindness, it always leads to living well in the here and now. And by living well, I mean treating other people well. It leads to a life of joyful expectation, destroying our misconceptions, destroying our ideals, destroying our self-images, and restoring us to himself. And if you notice something about all these instructions here that's really interesting that Paul gives, is they all relate to relationships with other people. All these instructions that Paul gives relate to relationships with other people. So maybe Paul is saying here that if you love God, if you know God, then you're going to love people. Seems pretty logical. Greatest commandments. That sounds a lot like those. So he tells older men, he tells them to be respectful. Respectful, that deals with relationships with other people. Be self-controlled, that in some way deals with relationships with other people. Be hospitable, be nice to people, that deals with relationships with other people. Be reverent, don't talk bad about other people, that deals with relationships. Don't take care of your family, that deals directly with relationships. So you kind of get the idea here. So God's grace, whenever we understand it in its fullness, then we're going to live lives of being good. We're going to live lives of loving other people well. Fruits of the Spirit. So God, his favor, he desires to be with us, resulting in our freedom, establishing a relationship that leads us to right living. So then, I never answered the question, how do we be good? Well, here's, here's my proposition for you. What if being good, it's not about doing all the right things? What if it's not about knowing all the right things? But what if being good is about knowing the God that is good? About being in relationship with the God that is good? You see, Titus's issue with the people of Crete wasn't that they didn't know how to be good. It was that they didn't know God. They were not aware of God. They didn't know God's grace. They didn't know God's favor. They didn't know the adoption. They didn't know the instruction. They didn't know any of this. So thus, they were living like animals. Because see, what happens is attempting, attempting to rem- remedy the behavior problem like Mrs. Erfer did with rules and regulations, it would be avoiding the root issue that's going on w- w- with the people in Crete. So what if being good means knowing God? 
and not knowing things about God, because we can all list off attributes of God, but rather experiencing a deep and intimate personal relationship with the one who intended for you to exist. I love that. Intended for you to exist. He wants you here. What if living well means getting to know God right now, living in the kingdom right now? Not as a God who, who will be with someday, but knowing God as the God with us. Do you know God, God as him as creator, as author, as father, as teacher, as wonderful counselor, as Lord, as king, as Emmanuel? Have you personally and powerfully experienced the way in which God's grace transforms your very being? Every ideal, every self-image, every understanding that the world has taught you, every lie that the world has taught you, has it been transformed by existing in God's household, by existing in the kingdom now? Because church, my fear is that that we've some, somehow we've worked ourselves into a position in which we have forgotten the goodness of the good news. We've forgotten that God willed us into existence. We've forgotten that God has favor on us. We, we've, sometimes we turn the gospel in our own lives into this, this gospel of sin management and not a message necessarily of hope. The only way that we will reverse this is getting to know God for who he really is is not who we have made God out to be. So then this very naturally flows into another question. How do we get to know God? Well, then I would follow that up with another question. How do you get to know anyone else? How do you build relationships? You spend time with people, right? You spend time with people. So how do you get to know God? You spend time with God. And what does that mean? What does spending time with God mean? And I'll define it simply. By being aware of his presence in the here and now. Being aware of God with us. Now, I'm the sort of person that, that I live in my head. I, I'm constantly, there's thoughts racing through my mind about, I gotta get this done, I gotta do that, you know, all, all these things going on in my head. And the most effective way for me to live with God now is to take time to be still to take time to just be in silence for however long it takes for me to become aware of God's presence and his delight in me as who he's created me to be. And I like to call these moments of times of just existing, times of just existing, without any expectations of who God is, without any expectations of, of myself. Because when we spend time with God and we delight in his grace, he teaches us that we are loved, and he teaches us to love others in the same way. So being good, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the grace of God. Now, there, there was one particular day in, in second grade when I had received a red report. You know, I don't remember what I did to, to earn th that red report, and, and it doesn't matter anymore, but what I do remember is I was terrified the whole bus ride home. I was anticipating the disappointment of my father because I just knew he would be mad. It was the first red report I got. And I remember sitting there trying to come up with some sort of plan or maybe I could accidentally lose the report. You know, maybe I could accidentally forget it at school or say I forgot it at school, but, but I couldn't come up with anything. So I got home before my dad did most of the time and my stepmom was usually there. So I 
pulled the folder out, you know, and, and I handed it to my stepmom, and she said, she saw the red report, and she said, wait till dad gets home. You know, so then I was living in fear for the next few hours waiting for dad to get home. So it felt like I waited for an eternity that evening. But, but when I finally did get home, well, he did get home, I handed the report over to him, and, and his response was nothing like anything that I was expecting. I thought he was going to be so mad. I thought he was going to be so disappointed. But he didn't get angry. And he didn't punish me. There was no punishment. He simply asked me, what can we do differently tomorrow so that this doesn't happen again? What can we do differently tomorrow so this doesn't happen again? You see, the, the red report, it, it didn't change the way that my dad already loved me. It didn't change that he loved me. The red report, it gave him an opportunity to love me in a way that taught me what it meant to be good. So this then is the question, church. What can we do differently to be good, to live well today? Will we try to keep being good by our own working, by our own, you know, just hopefully one day, man, I'll be good one day. Or will we get to know God, the real God, his favor, his grace, his kindness, his goodness, his love, and let him teach us how to love others well. Let him teach us how to be good, because he will. When we're in a relationship with him, God teaches us how to be good. God himself teaches us how to be godly. Let's pray. Dear God, we stand in awe of, of, of your grace, of your mercy, of your loving kindness for your creation, God. God, we thank you so much that you have willed us to be here. God, that you have intended for us to exist and to have life and to breathe. God, and I pray that we would come to know how deeply, how deeply that, that changes the way we live in the here and now. God, I pray that we would experience the fullness of your love, the fullness of your grace in a way that transforms our very being and moves us into a space of loving other people well. God, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray.